today. Okay. Perhaps you've heard me tell this story before. Um, I probably have told it because I every time I think about it, it makes me laugh. My husband tells this story about his Rosh Hashiva, that the Rosh Hashiva would get up Friday night, he'd speak for an hour and a half, and then he'd go, Zeh ha-hakdama, rishona. Yeah, so um, we spoke last, last week, a whole hour, and that really was the first introduction. And today, we're still going to do introduction to Sefer Dvarim, which, and next week we'll do Purim, so only the week after that, we will actually go into the Psukim. Now, to summarize, Sefer Dvarim, remember last week we talked about who wrote the book. And today we're going to talk about, you need to understand the uniqueness of Sefer Dvarim. So, number one, what makes the Sefer unique is the Moshe slash God uh, who wrote it. That's number one, which we spoke about. Number two is the nature of the Sefer. It's a monologue rather than prose. And finally, the whole content of the Sefer and the, rep the repetition that occurs within it. Now, you all know that one of the names for the Sefer is the Mishneh Torah. And people are used to thinking that Mishneh Torah means an adjunct to the Torah, as is perhaps a repeat of the Torah. But let's together do a quick thinking here. Sefer Breshit, okay, story of the Avot, the story of the family. Any of that get repeated in Devarim? No. Okay? So there's no Sefer Breshit in Devarim. Shmot, anything about Mitzrayim, other than the fact that you were slaves there? No. It, the only two things from Shmot that we get are the Egel and the Aserat had Debrot. So not a huge repeat of Shmot. Vayikra, here again, Sefer Devarim makes no mention of any of the priestly laws, very few carbonot, so that Vayikra is also, so Bereshit isn't repeated, Shmod isn't repeated, Vayikra isn't repeated, and how much of Midbar is repeated? We have the story of the spies, we have the war of Sichon and Og, but that's just about it. And we do not get a repeat of mitzvot like Nazir and Sota and Chala, all of those things that we talked about in Bamidbar. So just by taking a quick look now, we see <coughs> that Bamidbar, Devarim, is not really a repetition in the way that we might think of. So let's take a look first at the Ramban here in source 1A. Pardon? In Devarim, yes. And let's take a look at the introduction of the Ramban to Devarim to see what is his approach to the Sefer. And he's talking about Moshe, and he says, before he, before Moshe began explaining the Torah, he began with re to rebuke them and remind them of their sins, since how much they rebelled in the desert and how the Almighty acted with attribute of kindness. So according to the Ramban, his approaches 
that the whole purpose of Sefer Devarim is to stress the kindness of God. Listen why. This was to inform them of his great kindness for them so that they would not return to their iniquity, lest they add to all their sins and encourage them by letting them know that he will forever deal with them with the attribute of kindness. You know, it could, you know, that, you know that there are, you know, kids like this who once they don't, don't do well, we call it, you know, um, learned helplessness, where the kid already understands that, well, I'm not gonna pass anyway, so why bother trying? So according to the Ramban, it sounds like Moshe was afraid that what, that's what Am Yisrael was gonna say. We're gonna sin anyway, so why bother trying? And not only why bother trying, what's gonna happen to us if we go into the land and continue sinning? Nobody will then say that it is impossible to conquer the land. First say, are we even gonna be able to conquer the land? And then there's nobody who does not sin, and will the attribute of justice be employed against him? He will be destroyed. Moshe therefore informed them that the Almighty is merciful and full of compassion, and his forgiveness and absolution serve to help and support the people of his service. These words of introduction <coughs> and reproof extend until the verse, observe his laws and commandments, which I enjoin upon you to this day, and it may go well with you and your children after you, that you may long remain in the land that the Lord your God is assigning to you for all times. Moshe then called of all Yisrael who were before him and said, Hear Israel the laws, and he began to explain the Ten Commandments. So in other words, the Ramban is basically saying that Moshe is speaking to the nation that's about to enter the land. And he wants to give them a specific laws that are dedicated to them. Therefore, he does not repeat any of the laws that are specific to the Kohanim, because that's not relevant to them. He does not talk about Tuma and Tahara, because that is not necessarily relevant to their lives. And what he does review, according to the Ramban, he reviews certain mitzvot that they, he felt they needed to review. There are some new mitzvot, and it's sort of difficult to categorize what's new and what's not new. I mean, why he, why he gave it now. But his basic message, the Ramban, is that these are mitzvot that are needed for this new generation to enter the land, to remind them that God is merciful. The Abarbanel disagrees with this, and he says, no, your division, Ramban, is not right because there are new mitzvot, there are old mitzvot. It's not clear to us why he wants to do it. And according to the Abar Benel, which you don't have, according to the Abar Benel, he says that the whole purpose of Sefer Devarim is to teach hashkacha pratit, that God is involved in every individual, and there is reward and there is punishment based on your actions. Anybody? And, and then if it gets cold, you turn it back on. And finally, <clears throat> the third approach <clears throat> that we're going to take, I think, which is the easiest one for us, is remember we pointed out last week that Moshe is speaking 36 days before his death. So what is he doing? He's giving his legacy. And I think that's the easiest way to understand Devarim, that this is a living will and testament 
this is what he's reflecting back, and this is what he wants them to remember for the future. Now, <clears throat> the Vilna Gone has an interesting approach, which appears here in source number two. The Vilna Gone divides, and this becomes, I think, the correct approach, is if you turn the page, it starts at the bottom of page one, but continues on to page two, you'll see a little chart. I charted it for you. He says you basically have to divide the Book of Devarim into three sections. Section one is the rebuke, where Moshe starts, and that goes from the beginning of chapter one till chapter four, verse 40. Then we have the chapter of the mitzvot, which begin in, in chapter five and go until 2619. And then you have what's called the covenant, the curses, the blessings, the brachot to the shvatim, all of that goes to the end of the sefer. Now, what else the, the Vilna Gon does here is I should have brought them for you again, perhaps, but yesterday we looked, last week we looked at the first five psukim. So the Vilna Gon takes those first five psukim and he says those five psukim are modeled for the rest of the book. He says verse one and two is rebuke. Remember, that's where Moshe gave all of the names of the places where they sinned. Then verse three and four are the mitzvot. And verse 5 is the covenant. You'll go back and look at those psukim. And then the Vilna Gon says, each of these sections, this is what makes it Mishnah Torah, that each of the sections corresponds to the other books. He says, we don't need to correspond to Bereshi. Well, let, let's see it inside, and you see how nicely he says it. So let's go back to the beginning of source number 2. Know that all of the text." From these are the things up to the Lord our God, our introduction to the Sefer. Right? Those are those first five psukim. Therefore, these verses include three mentions of Moshe speaking. In those first five psukim, it says three times, and Moshe spoke. Because he says each one is a different section. These are the things which Moshe spoke. Moshe spoke to B'nai Yisrael, and Moshe began. The reason for this is because the Sefer has three parts. From the beginning of the Sefer up to a Moshe called out, preceding the Ten Commandments, teaching Musar. Then from Moshe called out up to the blessings, that's two, that's till 2619, teaching the commandments, and from then on, the third section dealing with the blessing, the curses of the other matters. Therefore, prior to Moshe called out, the text then says, these are the testimonies and the statues, and therefore it begins Moshe called out, right? And it just proves it from the words that this is the correct division. And these three matters represent all of the Torah. And the Torah also consists of these three books, Shmot, Vayikra, Abba, Midbar, because Bereshit is the root of all the Torah. But remember, there are no real mitzvot in Bereshit. And therefore, the Midrash also divides into three parts, Sifra, Sifri, and Mechilta. Those are the, the three Medrash Halacha that we have. There's no Medrash Halacha in the book of Bereshit. Why is there no Medrash Halacha in the book of Bereshit? because there's no halacha in Bereshit. So you have the Sifra, the Sifri, and the Mechilta on Shmot by Yikram by Midbar. And this is the meaning of the teaching. He gave a three-part teaching, meaning three books. And, no, it's a different question. He's not saying who said it, but what... what, the, what no, I, I asked why, why isn't Pru or Ru? Ah, why isn't Pru or Ru listed right there? There are three mitzvot in Bereshit, in Bereshit really. It's Pru or Ru, Brit Milah, and Yid Hanasha. But it's not enough 
to make a whole Sefer Halacha out of. Um, and these three parts of the Sefer Devarim correspond to the three books of the Torah. In other words, these are the words, Ela Devarim, compared to Shemot, which is Elu Shemot. Vayikrad, he called after Moshe, corresponds to, and Moshe called out, and Bamidbar corresponds to Moshe spoke, Vayidaber, Bamidbar. Okay, which I just thought was a very nice parallel, sort of, and the chart makes it quite clear. <coughs> so you're getting <coughs> sort of a division of what is going on here in the uh, Sefer. Now, by the way, the way these three sections are divided out, they're also divided out into, it's, we consider them three different speeches, because remember, it's all Moshe speaking. So the rebuke is speech number one, the mitzvot is considered speech number two, and the covenant is speech number three. Okay, those are the way we are going to be referring to it throughout the year. Now, I want to jump back to source number one, which very much acts as a beautiful bridge to what we said at the end of last week. Remember, at the end of last week, we were very much questioning, was it God? Was it Moshe? Did Moshe say it and God agreed to it? Moshe said some of it. God said some of it. So here if Tzadok says, the reason why it says, these are the words, Elu HaDvarim, is that this Parsha contains two matters. One is that this is a repetition of the Torah, and it is the beginning of the Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu, which represents the oral Torah. Remember, we said that's what makes Devarim unique. That Devarim is a bridge between Torah Shabbatav and Torah Shabbatav, as it's written. And then it quotes that Gemara that we quoted last week that was the problem. Moshe uttered these words from his own mouth. As it's written, Moshe began to declare the Torah. And Rashi explains, he explained it to them in 70 languages. And we know as soon as you work with a translation, you're automatically working with an interpretation. So as soon as Moshe translates the Torah into 70 languages, he's giving the people a interpretation. He's giving them Torah Shabbal Peh. Why is he interpreting it in 70 languages? At that point, correct? But the idea is that that is the beginning. Moshe is giving them Be'erat Torah. He's giving them the tools for the future. That's exactly the idea. And so we learn she wisdom was hewn from seven pillars, which refused first of the seven days of creation. These are the seven lower attributes as it's written in the Holy Zohar with the seventh attribute corresponding to Queen Shabbat or Malchut. The mouth, it's called the oral law. And so it is taught in Shabbat. She was hewn out of the seven pillars. This refers to the seven books of the Torah. This, remember, we talked about, remember we talked about the Pesukim Vahib and Soa Aron and there are two nuns around it and it's considered a book in and of itself. And that's why we said that there are actually not five books of Torah, but there are actually seven books of the Torah. That's what Rav Tzadok is referring to. We spoke about that. We talked about that when we talked about the Pesukim Vahib and Soa Aron, that there are nuns around it, and it's considered a book in and of itself. So that there are seven pillars of the Torah, and this book is the seventh book, makes Devarim the seventh book, corresponding to the attribute of Malchut, which is the oral Torah. And this is the reason why the Sefer includes the Torah commandments for a second time, as it's written, for now that you are contrite, I shall give you the laws and the Medrash and the Agada. So the Mishnah Torah here, according to Rev Tzadok, is, this, is again this bridge between the Torah Shabbat and the Torah Shabbat Now, 
we pointed out at the end of the share last week that academia believes that Sefer Dvarim was written at a much later time. And the reason academia felt the need to do this was because of a number of problems in Sefer Dvarim. And those problems were that you have two versions of the same story. The problem is that there's some language that appears in Dvarim that doesn't appear earlier in time. And um, it talks about the centrality of uh, worship, which we don't have in other books. And so they come along and they say, well, it was written later on. There is an excellent article by Rabbi Joshua Berman, and I gave you the link at the very, very end. So those of you who are interested, at the bottom of page five, you'll see there's a link that for any of you who's interested in this, it is a four, four um, essays that are dedicated to this, but it is a fascinating approach that I wanted to share with you. Rabbi Berman himself, who's a colleague of mine in Barilan, says that basically the relationship of Sefer Devarim to the other books is one of the challenges that, that is faced by Orthodox Jewry. He says, don't underestimate. Like, it's very easy to say blah. He says, no, it is a real issue. And sometimes you really have a problem. Like, how do we make Sefer Devarim work? He says, for the most part, Chazal took an approach called harmonization. What's the approach harmonization? So for instance, if you take a well-known example, which we're going to look at next week, is it says in Sefer by Midbar, who sent the spies? Hashem turns to Moshe and says, Shalach lecha anashim. In Bamidbar, it seems, <coughs> excuse, excuse me, it seems to be that it was God sending the spies. No, I'm good, thanks. In this book, in Sefer Devarim, it says very clearly that the nation came over and asked Moshe to send the spies. Well, so who is it? Is it God or is it Moshe? So the classical commentators come along and they sort of give an explanation by saying that it actually was the people and then Moshe asked God and God said, okay. That's what we call the harmonization. We have two different stories and we sort of try, try to make the story work. So the advantage to harmonization is that you make the two stories sort of come together. The problem with harmonization is that if you open up, you know, you harmonize this, then you're going to end up with another problem there. It doesn't necessarily give you a shita. It doesn't give you an approach to all the stories. So the uh, Joshua Berman, who is a biblical historian, uses the what he calls the vassal treaty and we have many copies of these vassal treaty coming from the Chittite library they discovered this library it's almost intact and it took years to people able to learn the Chittite language and today there's a huge study of the Chittite um uh, you know all their papers that they found now, you know, first of all, let me remind you that we've studied here the Rambam, who has an approach where the Rambam says, remember a number of times, you can't just cut people off from what they know. And Torah has to slowly wean people, right? We've seen this on a number of occasions. 
in Maranavuchim, for instance, the most primary example of it is Avodazara, right? He says you can't just get people to stop worshiping. You have to sort of wean them off of it slowly. So this is a concept that we know that Torah addresses people to a place where they're at. And look at this fascinating. You've got to see this. If you look at the Ralbag in source number three, fascinating Ralbag, which we actually also studied. Do you remember when we talked about why does the Torah need to repeat all of the Mishkan again? And the Ralbag at the end of Shemot says like this, perhaps we may say that it was the convention at the time of the giving of the Torah to fashion literature in this way, and the prophet expresses himself through the conventions of this time. Okay, well, Bob didn't even know because before they found it, but it's a fascinating that he was able to, he said, you know, maybe this is the way they spoke, that they used to repeat things all the time, that that was considered the proper way of addressing the people. So, um, Dr. Berman, go ahead. Yes, the Torah. That's correct. So, so the Torah. So much time right, because at the same time, although the Torah is meant to be for all of the generations, Torah was also given to a group of people at a time. At a time. And that's important to remember. If they hadn't accepted it, then we wouldn't be here today. They need to accept this lifestyle. So. Dr. Berman says that they've discovered these things called the Vassal Treaty. Now, the Vassal, um, I guess, Habrita Oved, maybe, because that's when a servant, a servant is. Uh, yes. Um, he says that like this, in the Vassal Treaty, there's always a sovereign and the Vassal. And there are always, always three elements to the treaty. There, at the beginning, there is the historical prologue. Then there's the requirements of each side. And then there's curses or blessings to what happens if you keep the treaty. That's the way all of those treaties exist. So what do we have in Sefer Devarim? We have the historical prologue. Then we have the mitzvot, the obligations, and then we have the curses and the blessings. So that he says Sefer Devarim is essentially a modeled on what B'nai Yisrael would have recognized as a vassal treaty. Now, we'll talk about that one second, one second. Let me just point out that today, we have something very common, similar. We're used today to a written contract, right? Why do we have a contract? We draw it between two sides, and we don't have witnesses, like they use the heaven and the earth. We have notaries. We don't have curses, but we do have penalties. So that the treaties, so to say, that we drew up today are not necessarily that different than the treaties then. Now, he says the problem, let's just go back in, I'll talk about that in a second. He says the problem with saying that Devarim as of a later time, he says that doesn't explain why some stories are repeated and some stories aren't. He says it doesn't explain, if you wanted to write a new book, why would you attach it to the old one? He said not only that, Devarim expects you to know the earlier versions. 
So how do you expect somebody to know the early versions and then go ahead and contradict them? He says, also, when you write a new book, you have to have a new agenda. He says, there's no new clear agenda. And he says, if you wanted to write a new book, why would you write it in the voice of Moshe? You might, you'd be better off writing it in the voice of God directly. So he says that idea doesn't answer, you know, that's everybody, you know, they like to say oh, it's, a, it's a separate book. He says it doesn't answer the questions. He believes that what does answer the question of Sefer Devarim is this um, vassal treaty. He says, for instance, now this is very interesting. He says, for the most part, if there was a contract between the vassal and the, and the, the sovereign and the vassal, and they broke the contract, the vassal rebelled, whatever it is, and they had to renew the contract, or the, the king died and the son took over. He says, we have a whole bunch of them. They would tell history again, but they would repeat it in a different version in order to stress either the responsibility of the sovereign or the responsibility of the vassal, depending on what had happened in history. He says, and the people would study the document and by comparing the versions of the history, they would understand what the message is that the vassal is saying. And I think we could think of this very much today from politics. A politician will say something, and then all of the uh, aides will come and sit and try to, what did they mean by this compared to what he said last month? What's, what are we supposed to understand from it? They don't necessarily say everything out black and white. So the idea here was there was no desire to forget the earlier versions of the story. You are exactly what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to take the earlier version of the story. You're supposed to take the story in Devarim and compare it. And then you're supposed to understand nuanced what has changed or what has been emphasized. And therefore you understand the new relationship between the sovereign and the vassal. Every single change is carefully measured in order to give a diplomatic message. And here in Sefer Devarim, God is looking to do what with the new generation? He's looking after the new gen after the old generation has rebelled and broken the treaty. Right. God wants to renew the treaty. And according to Dr. Berman, what is God modeling his treaty on? He's modeling it on something that was very familiar to the people. How was it familiar to the people? The Jews did not live in a vacuum. They definitely had interaction with the other nations. First of all, when they were in Egypt, because remember, Egypt was the center of the world there. And even when they were in the desert, they did meet other people and they traveled through lands. Remember, now they're sitting on the banks of Moab. So they definitely have interaction with them as well. So they did not live in a vacuum, so they were familiar. This was apparently the well-known treaty at the time. And Dr. Berman says that, think about this for a minute, the advantages to this is, first of all, I no longer have to harmonize the two stories. Because we understand the different versions come to teach a new political reality, not to teach history. The tone here is subjective. Whose tone is it? Moshe's. Okay? And it only makes sense to us, by the way, is if you know the 
history earlier and you compare it to this story. And according to Rabbi Berman, this actually answers the problem of safe environments. It's a fascinating approach. It's a new approach because only recently have these documents become public. And I thought it was of interest. Anyway, moving along to this concept, then we have to sort of say, so what is new in Devarim? What is a, what are the themes in Devarim that we don't see um, in the other in the rest of the books? So the first idea I think is basically the moral underpinnings of the mitzvot. In the other books, the mitzvot are presented essentially as religious responsibilities. When we hit Sefer Devarim it's already put on a moral responsibility on the you. Let me show you an example. Look at source number four, a pasuk you all know. Source number four is the mitzvah of Shabbat based on the Aseret HaDibrot. Why do you have to keep Shabbos? Because God created the heavens and earth and he rested. Okay, it's a religious responsibility. In Devarim, what do we have though? Why do you have to keep Shamar Yamashabs Lakadcho? Ki Eved Hayita Be'eretz Mitzrayim. And therefore, you have to rest, and your slaves have to rest, and your animals have to rest. <coughs> All of it has a moral underpinning. Five times throughout the course of Sefer Devarim, we have this motif of the moral dimension of remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And so here, remember we spoke about last week, by the way, we saw the Maharal talks about, you know, the emphasis on God versus the emphasis on the receiver. So here's another example of this. So if it's God who's emphasizing in the other four books, it's the religious responsibility. In Devarim, it's the human's responsibility and what it is that we are supposed to learn from it. Here's another example. Look at source number five as opposed, as opposed to 5a. That's why I set up the sources so you can compare them. In source number five, we have the pasuk of um, taking the Arbaminim. V'lakachtam lachem biyom harishon pri'eitz hadar kapat tmarim v'anach eitz avot v'arvei hanachal. Right, those are all the arba meaning that you're supposed to take. And you should rejoice on the simcha of the chag. Now look how it says in Sefer Devarim. Again, you need to remember that you were slaves. See, it's the same mitzvah repeated. But who was the emphasis on on Vayikra? Who should be happy? You. In Devarim, who should be happy? You, your son, your daughter, your slave, your female slave, the widow, the orphan. You see here, the emphasis is no longer just on you. The emphasis is on your moral responsibility to those who are weaker than you in society. <coughs> so therefore, you see, you have the same mitzvah repeated, 
but its repetition has a different emphasis. The joy of the festival is much more socially obligated rather than just your religious responsibility to the people. And here is another example of this, which is also interesting. In 6 and 6a, coming up to Parshat Zahor, I felt the need to put it in. In Shmot, it tells the story of Amalek. And Vayoma Hashem al-Moshe, Kitov Zot Zikaron B'Sefer, and we spoke about the B'Sefer, if you remember. V'sim po'aznei Yehuda, ki macho emche etzecha malek mitachat ha-shamayim. Who is doing the macho emche in Sefer Shmot? God. Then if we come down to Devarim, we have, Zachar et asher asar lecha amalek b'derech b'sefer mitzrayim, asher karcha b'derech, Remember what Amalek did when you left Egypt, how they attacked you on the road and they attacked the weak people and you were tired and you did not fear God. And it will be when God um, saves you, when you have peace from all your enemies. Who should destroy Amalek? You. So all of a sudden you see a, a, a difference here. There's a transformation happening. He, who's being attacked? Why do you have to attack? In, in, in Shemot, it almost sounds like the war is between God and Amalek. In source 6a, who's the war between? The people and Amalek. Why? Because Amalek attack the, the weak. And it's your responsibility to defend the weak. So all of a sudden we've been able to see that when you start comparing the stories, you see, it's not a repetition straight, but it's a repetition in order to add a different facet that we haven't been introduced to before. And so here the facet is the moral responsibility. And why would Moshe be giving this moral responsibility to them? Basically, until now, they've been living in the desert. When they lived in the desert, who was the responsible one? God, and God was doing everything for them, and it was their responsibility, religious responsibility to God. Once they're about to be tr to change from a nomadic nation into a nation that lives in their own land, Moshe is emphasizing now the social obligations that they're going to have one to another, and it's no longer just God. So that's one facet that we find here in Dvarim that we didn't find earlier, which also makes sense back to our vassal treaty. We want to increase the treaty. We want the responsibility of the vassal. The next theme that we see in Dvarim that we didn't see earlier is actually God's love of Israel. This is something that is stressed, and it becomes almost the only sources that we have in Torah that talks about the relationship of God to the people, especially in terms of love. So some of these verses are very familiar to you. Look at source number seven, where it says, Lo God loves you not because there are so many of you. But actually God chooses you because you are a small group. God loves you. And he upkeeps the promise that he made to the Avot. 
And he took you out of the um, house, you know, he took you out of Egypt. So again, it very clearly says that it was out of the love for God that he takes you out. Continuing into source number eight, we saw this pasuk when we learned about Bilam. Hashem doesn't let Bilam curse you. God switched the klala, the curse, to a bracha. Why? Because God loves you. Basically, by the way, just the way in Devarim we have God's love, in Devarim is the only place we find the mitzvah of human, human beings' responsibility to love God, right? It makes sense that it goes both ways. And there you have in source number nine, right? Where does this pasuk occur? The pasuk from Shema appears only in the book of Dvarim. Or in Dvarim uh, 11. You have to love God and observe all have misspoke all of the days. Now, why would this love, the mutual love, appear specifically now when the nation is about to enter the land and Moshe is giving his last emphasis? What is significant about it? So here I think it's, it's these two ideas. That first of all, remember we already went, think back to the Ramban. The Ramban said, that what's the whole reason of Sefer Devarim is to tell the people that don't worry that even if you sin, God will not, God will take care of you and he'll help you win and he'll protect you. So therefore it makes sense to stress the love of God. But also I think we learned something very important here, that where does love of God for the people and the people's love of God, where is it most manifest? In the land. That's correct. That it's once you enter the land, only then can you really start talking about the relationship between God and B'nai Israel. Only then can you really properly talk about um, the love that God has for the people. And that's why Moshe is mentioning it now on the way in. So that's facet number two, the love. You can see the miracles, but it never, the interesting thing is it never says that God does that miracle because he loves you. That term only appears in the book of Devarim. And because that's what he's saying, that the real love, that you can see the relationship between God and the nation can only really be once you enter the land of Israel. For the most, right, for the most part. Well, that's the whole idea of these past parashas. There's also the Mishkan. Right. Right. And they say that love, you know, really grows if it's the giving, right, right. Right, we have all the mitzvot to live. But all right, there's a whole, there's a whole more manifestation of that relationship in the land. And I think that that becomes an important message of Sefer Devarim. A third message of Sefer Devarim, which we don't have earlier, is actually the sanctity of the people. Another, it's almost, again, we'll compare the two sources 
and we'll see a huge difference. That for instance, if you look at source number 14, source number 14 is a Pasuk in Vayikra, which says, they shall not make a bald patch on their head. Lo yikachu karchab rosham, upeyatz ziknam lo yikachu, bibisaram lo yisartu suretet. They can't pull out their hairs and they can't rip their skins. Who is it that can't? In Vayikra? Who? Mm -mm. Vayikra. It's the Kohanim, correct. In Vayikra, this is a law specific to the Kohanim. Kidoshim yihiyu le'eloheihem. They, the Kohanim, will be kadosh to Hashem, velo yichalalu shem eloheihem ki et ishei Hashem, lechem eloheihem, heimakrivim hayu kodesh. This mitzvah, they can't rip their, skip, you know, rip their hair out and scratch their skins, comes from the fact that they are holy and they serve God. That is the mitzvah the Bnei Yisrael receive. All of a sudden, though, we come to 14a, which is Devarim. And what do we have in Devarim? Banim atem Hashem elokechem, lo tigodudu, velo tasimu karcha benen echem lamet. All of a sudden, who's being commanded the same mitzvah? The people. They too can't rip out their hair and uh, scratch up their skin. Why? Ki am kadosh, ata Hashem lokecha. Ubachar bachar shem liot lam liam sgula mikol hamim asher pnei ha'amim. Is that It says that's in terms of mourning. That's correct. You cannot do it. But the idea here is in Vayikra, who's holy? The Kohanim. And therefore they have laws that are reflected to them because they are the holy group. All of a sudden in Devarim, who's holy? Everyone. The nation is an Am Kadosh. Ki Am Kadosh, you have it very clearly. And therefore, that same rule that the Kohanim had, all of a sudden now, who is commanded to it? The Jews. When? At Sinai. That's correct. We have heard the Am Segula. That's correct. We did hear that there, but here we're going to see it actually transferred into actual mitzvot. Here's another one. Look at 15 and 15a. 15 is the Pasuk in Vayikra. And this is the mitzvah that was given to the Kohanim. Okay? That um, they cannot eat anything which is a trefa. And then in Dvarim, though, who's lo tochlu kol nevela? Lager asher bisharecha titnena ba'achla o machar lenachri ki am kadosh ata Hashem lokecha all of a sudden, the mitzvah is re-given to the people, and they too have this mitzvah of they cannot eat a nevela. So that we have this idea, and I think finally, perhaps in source number 16, we have it as well, that yakimucha Hashem lo la'am kadosh, kasher nishpalacha ki tishmar et mitzvah Hashem lokecha v'halach bedracha. Here we have, and we've seen this before as well, that the idea is that the whole nation can indeed become sanctified like the Kohanim, provided that, how do you become Kadosh? You have to keep the mitzvot. And only if the nation observes the commandments in the land of Israel, that is the ideal that Moshe is describing in 
Sefer Dvarim. But we all know that Am Yisrael isn't necessarily able to maintain that idea. And therefore, Sefer Dvarim introduces another concept that we only have in Dvarim. So we had, first of all, the concept of the moral aspect of the mitzvot. We have the sanctification of the individual, and we have the sanctification of the nation. And now, what is the last thing that we have in Devarim that we don't have anywhere else? A unique feature is the concept of tshuva. And if you turn back to source 11 and source 12, those are the psukim of tshuva that we don't have anywhere else in Torah. We have individuals who do tshuva, but here Hashem tells us, v'shavta at Hashem lokecha, v'shamata b'cholo, Chol asher anochi metzaveh hayom ata uvanecha b'chol levavecha v'chol nafshecha. And now listen to God's voice, and you will return to God. V'shav Hashem alokecha et shvutcha, and then God will bring back those of you who have gone into captivity. V'richamecha, and He will have mercy on you. V'shav v'kibetzcha mikol hamem asher fitzcha Hashem alokecha shama. And then God will draw back into the land those who were spread out all over the place. Even if you are spread out to the ends of the heavens, and then God will bring you back to the land that your fathers inherited, and it will be good for you there. And source number 12, and God will circumcise your hearts, meaning God will help you to return to him. So in other words, say for Devarim, I think, and this kind of probably, perhaps if you have to sum up the whole book, I would say that perhaps the unique message of Sefer Devarim is God is giving humanity a second chance. And that is the idea, perhaps that is the whole idea even if we go back to Rabbi Berman, of the new treaty that God is giving with the people, that is the um, idea perhaps even of the Ramban was saying that God is basically saying to them, don't worry, you will have an ability to return eventually. So it is a message perhaps of hope, and that is the message that um, Moshe Rabbeinu really wants to leave the people with as he is, you know, giving them his last will and testament. And so therefore, when we said, we went back to the beginning, remember we said, what is unique about Sefer Devarim? So we said it's unique in who said it. We said it's unique in the content. And it's unique in the nature of the story. So if we sort of have to summarize that when we talk about it as being Mishneh Torah, it's not Mishneh Torah in that it repeats the Torah. It's Mishneh Torah in that it highlights the human perspective, perhaps you might want to say, the morality of humanity, the responsibility of society, the love of God, both directions, the sanctity of the people, and the concept of tshuva, which is the ultimate, I think, message of hope 
that you can fix that what you did. So by I, we haven't obviously been able to cover all the themes here, but by looking at some of these themes, it allows us to understand the variations that we're going to see in Sefer Devarim. Now we're going to do some of comparisons between the mitzvot when we go into actual Devarim in two weeks, and then we're going to look at some of the unique aspects, some of the mitzvot that only apply, only appear in Devarim and not in the other books. And so, yeah, go ahead. Thank you. 